It's the Big Wake Up Call. I'm Ryan Gatenby, and time for my next guest, who is an academically awarded historian who specializes in transatlantic slavery, author of a new book, The Survivors of the Clotilda, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the American Slave Trade. We are going to visit with Hannah Durkin, and uh, Hannah, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me. How are you? How are things where you are? Yeah, they're good. I hope they are for you too. It's a fascinating book. This is going to go down as one of the most uh, significant historical documents into the Clotilda. Can you share with us uh, briefly what the book is about? Yeah, so the book is about the survivors of the Clotilda. And the Clotilda was, as far as we can tell, the last U.S. slave ship. And it docks in, um, basically docks in Mobile Bay, Alabama, in July 1860. So almost nine months to the day before the start of the Civil War. Now, this was an illegal ship at the time, correct? Because the importation of African slaves had been banned for, for decades. Yes. So the United States outlaws its slave trade in 1808. And it declares it piracy in 1820, which means it's a capital crime. You can be executed for, for this crime. Um, and of course, it's 40 years after that that the Clotilda sails across the Atlantic. Basically, there's an illegal slave trade that continues. It's mostly centered on Cuba um, by the by the 1850s. Um, and it's a, it is a massive trade, though. I think about 71% of all African people sent to Cuba ascend after 1820. So most people who, most African people who arrive in Cuba, who are trafficked to Cuba, you know, that they are illegally trafficked. Um, and a lot of the ships that are, are sailing, sailing across the Atlantic and trafficking people are U.S. built ships. So the U.S. plays a big indirect role in the illegal slave trade prior to the Cotilda's story. Now, was there a significance in the region of of what is now modern day Nigeria where they originated? Was that a typical point where where slaves had been kidnapped? Yes. Yeah, so, um, the, most of the Katilda survivors appear to have come from present day Oyo State in southwest Nigeria. They were Yoruban. That was their ethnic group. And they so there was the Oyo Empire, and the Oyo Empire was this massive empire was itself a slave trading empire in the 17th and 18th centuries, but it, it sort of collapses by about 1830. That's when it sort of comes to an end. And by the, yeah, from the sort of early to mid 18th century onwards, it's the Dahomey Empire, which is in present day Benin. This is perhaps, you know, this is, this is the dominant uh, slave trading empire in, in certainly West Africa at the time the illegal slave trade is um, is happening so yes yeah, so certainly um, and and the Dahomey Empire was at war with the Oyo Empire and and after the collapse of the Oyo Empire it's at war with a place called uh, well really with a Bay Okuta which is not very far away from where the Kutuba survivors are now, what is it in particular about uh, this ship, other than being the last uh, American slave trade ship coming to the United States? You've done extensive research on this. What, what to you is, is so historically significant, and what do we need to understand and, and remember about it? 
And what's uh, uh, so significant is the fact that, I mean, maybe there are two things here. One is that this voyage uh, and the survivors' voices and stories are better documented than uh, any other any other Middle Passage voice. So we have a much better picture of the Middle Passage through these the, the interviews with the accounts of the survivors. And certainly, in fact, there are almost no there are almost no surviving testimonies of women middle passage survivors. Half of the Clotilda survivors were women and girls. So this, the, their accounts give a better portrait of, uh, of women middle passage survivors than, than anything else, much fuller portraits. We get a bigger portrait of their lives and their voices. And also what's so significant is the fact that many of them live well into the 20th century. The last of them survived until January 1940. And, um, you know, she has, a, I think, a two, at least two grandchildren who are still alive. I was, um, yeah, I was in Selma with a grandson. He was taking me on a driving tour of Selma just this past week. So we're only a couple of generations removed from the survivors and horrors of this, um, you know, of the Middle Passage. Now, women's voices weren't typically recorded um, for, for stories like that. Was it they weren't interviewed? Were, was uh, a woman's story not seen as significant? Yeah, so so enslaved people's lives weren't treated as significant at all. So they weren't, I mean, and also many people died only a few years after being uh, sent across the Atlantic, being displaced to the Americas. So the average life expectancy, expectancy of an enslaved person was I mean, it varied a lot, but on average, maybe about seven years. And so there's no there's no attempt to document and tell their stories. Um, so they're, they're just not regarded at all. I mean, the, the four accounts that have been recorded of middle passage survivors, but women middle passage survivor testimonies, you know, a couple are petitions. Uh, so they're really, they're sort of legal documents rather than actual attempts to document their lives and their stories. And um, you write about yeah, the uh, yeah. the cultural significance of of this of the survivors with the foundation of an all black African town in in Alabama, which goes on to have a significant impact for the the Harlem Renaissance. Can you talk briefly on that? Absolutely. So, a group of about thirty Clotilda survivors uh, they're enslaved in the Beale, and when they're liberated. They establish their own town. They try at first to go home, to save up to go home and appeal to go home, but there's no money for them. And they have, many of them have children at this point. So actually, actually logistically traveling across the Atlantic again has become very difficult for them. So they establish a town which they name African Town, which is now known as Africa Town. It, it survives today. Descendants still live there. And um, they, they, they appoint their own. Uh, leader and judges and run the society according to the laws they would have had back home. They established church and a school and of course before long a grave as well um, for, their, for their loved ones. And this this town is, is basically a really successful town. So about two to three thousand people are living there by the turn of the 20th century. The businesses are owned by the local people. So these are black owned businesses. Some of them are you know really economically successful indeed. And in fact, the best, the most successful businessmen um, are the are Clotilda survivors. So these are incredibly talented, hardworking people. 
And the last of this community, a man named uh, Kuzulu Kujo Lewis, he actually, well, he's Zora No Hurston, the writer Zora No Hurston, actually goes to interview him. In fact, another, um, it, at least two Harlem Renaissance writers go to interview him. And Zora No Hurston writes a, a book, a book length interview with him, which was finally published in 2018. So he becomes a figure of interest, cultural interest in, in the 1920s. And he, um, Kazuma lives until uh, July 1935, so he lives into his 90s. You mentioned that, yeah, this is just nine months before the beginning of the Civil War. We have slaves brought to Alabama, which, you know, essentially the the heart of the Confederacy. I I can't imagine just arriving, beginning to negotiate that when there were uh, underground deals, I'm sure, attempted to be made to continue the, the slavery for the Confederacy. Yeah, so at least two of the um, Clotilda conspirators, or two people who enslaved Clotilda survivors, a man named Benjamin Rush Jones and Alexander Gibbons, they were um, they were closely associated with a man named William Lowndes Yancey. They kind of established a, a church together in the heart of Montgomery, um, just around the time that the Clotilda voyage is first being planned. And William Lowndes Yancey was the so-called orator of secession and the prince of the fire eaters. And the fire eaters are extremist groups who are campaigning for secession as early as 1850. And William Lowndes Yancey is the man who leads a walkout of Southern Democrats at the Democratic National Convention in the spring of 1860, which is just when the Clotilda is sailing across the Atlantic. And this walkout um, leads to the, you know, splitting the Democratic Party in two and leads to the election of Abraham Lincoln which, in, you know, the Republican Party, which is opposed to the expansion of slavery, which, of course, leads then to the you know, southern states to secede from the Union. But Yancey was a very vocal, you know, pro-slave trading campaigner in the late 1850s as well. You've done so much research. You have quite a comprehensive history in the book. Do do we know what we don't know about uh, the survivors? Are there still stories to be told? Do you think there's still evidence out there that you'll be able to recover? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, the evidence we have is fragmentary, but when you piece it together, I mean, it's just surprising how much how much information there is out there. And I benefited a lot. My research benefited a lot from the digitization of materials, so the digitization of genealogical records and the digitization of newspaper sources. Certainly, not all newspaper sources have been, you know, newspapers have all been digitized. I don't think much of the Mobile um, Press Register, the Mobile Register, has been digitized yet. There could be important information there that tells us more about the children's survivors. The book is The Survivors of the Clotilda, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the American Slave Trade. We've been visiting with the author, Dr. Hannah Durkin, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, sir.